student radio fresh air hi i am daisy and thank you for tuning in and happy monday the 3rd of april i hope you're doing well if you haven't listened to d to z before each week we'll be focused on a new topic with new guests who are related to the topic in some way there's a mix of music and chats and we'll just get to know our guests and throughout the show there'll be opportunities to get your thoughts opinions and questions in via the d to z instagram so make sure you're following that just search up at d to z radio and head over to the instagram stories it's also show 20 of d to z Oh my goodness, so exciting. And who better to have on the 20th episode than a celebrity guest and also my very own exclusive song debut, which this star producer helped to create. It's very exciting. He worked at the BBC for 16 years, starting as a technical operator and ending up as a member of the Radiophonic Workshop, writing music from everything from radio jingles, radio drama, Doctor Who and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. His book, Rocking at the BBC, is available to buy on Kindle now. It is the one, the only, Paddy Kingsford! <laughs> Hello, Paddy. How are Hello, you? Daisy. How are you today? I'm good, Daisy. Yes, um, uh, that's a totally over-the-top um, <laughs> <laughs> description, but thank you anyway. I don't think it's over-the-top. It's, it's all very true. You've, you've yes. got a good, well, good yeah. star-studded roster under your belt. I was very lucky working for the BBC at that time. And it's not so easy now, unfortunately, if, if people want to, you know, get into that world. But uh, it's just still possible. And I think BBC is still a good place. Um, so far, so good. So far, so good, yeah. And, I, and of course it has changed. I mean, you worked at the BBC for 16 years. Can you tell me a little bit about... Well, firstly, let's talk a little bit about your book, Rocking at the BBC, Still in Love with Auntie. Can you explain the title quickly? Yeah, Rocking at the BBC came from something we did when the BBC, a long time ago now, uh, was 50 years old. And some guys at Radio 1 wrote a song called Rocking at the BBC, which um, was a, a kind of funny song which actually went out on a record eventually. It's, it's on the internet somewhere. And it's um, uh, Pete Drummond was a DJ and he sang it. And uh, we actually went on Old Grey Whistle Test and played, <laughs> played this thing. Oh. Um, and um, it, was, um, it, it was a sort of amusing thing. But I thought that sort of summed up what we were kind of doing. I played bass on it. That's what I... <laughs> my, my kind of... Uh, co- uh, claim to fame on that particular thing um and um i don't know why i called the book that uh but the still in love with auntie is uh, is sort of saying you know come on guys it's still okay there in spite of all the kind of rubbish that gets thrown at the bbc mm. um, and auntie is referring to the bbc that's right yes that's the old name for the bbc <laughs> sure, I mean, a very prestigious institution Yes. What, what made you want to write the book in the first place? Because it has been a long time since since you left the BBC. What what brought it back up? Well, um, I wrote a book uh, before this, which is kind of ready to go, 
example, um, which wasn't that sort of book at all. It was like my childhood being brought up in a village in the sort of 50s, 60s, which was, um, you know, a nice thing to write about because I, I kind of saw the end of a village life going on and uh, all the sort of old characters and uh, the, the farms that were still working then. And most of that's been kind of swallowed up now. And I thought, mm. well, it'd be nice to have a record of that. So although it, it, it is, you know, my contacts and all that, it's not really about me. It's about, you know, that kind of world um, that, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to be in. So um, I wrote that, um, but I thought, well, nobody's going to really be interested in that probably. So I'll do another one about the BBC because that's got all those kind of names and things like that in it. So I did that, and um, uh, you know that that's the rocking at the BBC book, which uh, took a little while actually. But yeah, no, I think did you say it took a couple of years? Yes, it was a couple of years, I think, altogether. Because uh, there's a lot of fiddle, you know, fiddle in writing books. You have to sort of, uh, you know, you get the ideas down, and then you can kind of cut and paste and edit the thing yeah. and try and make it flow which he doesn't always do. And then, of course, endless mistakes have to be corrected and all that. Stuff. Yeah, just just like music, I guess. Just yeah, like music. I learnt a lot. Yeah, it is the same thing, really, isn't it? It's putting stuff mm. together and rearranging it until it works. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about your journey first into the BBC. So, like you said, you grew up in rural Hampshire, in the countryside, and this was post-World War II. Yeah. So... Tell me a bit about how you ended up training, firstly, for the BBC. Well, um, I, I, I kind of screwed up my A-levels, unfortunately, um, because I was playing in, in, in a band <laughs> while I was supposed to be revising. And, That's uh, so rock and roll of you. It, it sounds rock and roll. In fact, I was <laughs> I was a bit too dim to get them right. I oh think, but God! <laughs> <laughs> but I I did I did muck up the A levels and um, but I had always wanted to work for the BBC and there was an opportunity of this job called technical operator which you could go in with just an A level and and that was it and so they uh, they said you must come for an interview so I went up uh, my mum made me go and get a suit (laughs) (laughs) which I didn't have a suit then (laughs) and so I was you know quite uncomfortable in this this new suit and went into this boardroom and there were kind of four people in there and you sat down in front of them and uh you know this is age what 18 something like that and uh so uh they had put down sport and games on on the on the form the entry form sort of thing and i'd i'd put down sk- ice skating oh and I no had, i had been once um because i wasn't much on football and all that so i had actually been once ice skating and fallen over completely and and uh, so i thought oh, i'll put that down so there was this guy who was from the sort of uh, hr department at personnel as they were called then who was there and he uh he said, oh, I see you, you like ice skating. <laughs> where <laughs> Where do you go ice skating? And I said, oh, um, uh, uh, Southampton. Oh, I know that very uh-oh, well. <laughs> uh-oh. So I was going, oh, my God. 
Uh, but mm. we got through that. And then one of the others who is a bit more serious and sort of engineering bloke said, uh, no, I wonder if you'd like to do this and handed me a piece of paper, this quadratic equation. And I kind of froze. It's something any A-level maths person should be able to do, of course. And I kind of was looking kind of panic-stricken and they said, no, no, don't worry about that. That's fine, you know. Oh. And uh, I thought, this isn't going very well. Oh, so. no. Oh, no. And, and then one of them handed me a valve. Now, a valve, if you, no, people might not know what these are, but the, the old-fashioned TV sets used to be filled with these things. They were glass kind of tubes which glowed and were the predecessors of transistors so okay. that every circuit had those before they invented the transistors and he handed me this valve and said now what do you think that is and i said oh you know mm. i said that's an ecc 83 i think or it could be an ecc 82 because i'd been well into playing around in the shed with old radios and that sort of stuff oh. and they said ha ha yeah oh uh, so you were right we, well, yeah, and they said there was a discussion between them about maybe it's a 12AX4. No, no, it's a, you know, all that kind of stuff. And they said, no, all we wanted to know was it's a valve. Oh. And so they thought this guy is into this. He knows his stuff. stuff. And uh, so, so that, that was a good point. And, and oh. eventually I got offered the job. So you got offered the job and then you headed off to Evesham. Yeah, Evesham was the training school for the BBC. It, they got this kind of country house out in the countryside in uh, Worcestershire, Evesham, and they bought it in the war as a backup for Broadcasting House in case that got blown up. And then after the war, it became the training centre. And uh, I don't know if it's still going in that respect. I think they do have a some sort of stuff going on i'm not sure there but also um now of course they they have television stuff going on and i do remember that when i was there it was a long time ago it was in 1966 and there was a big kind of new building in the grounds and you wandered into that and it was a completely functioning tv studio wow. and looked at the monitor and it was in color because in those days all we had was black and white. So that was, <laughs> wow, you know. But anyway, I wasn't in, I had hoped I might be in the TV department, but I wasn't. I was in the radio. What a different conversation we would be having if you were in the TV department. Well, we'd be online, wouldn't we? And, uh, I'd, you know, full makeup. <laughs> <laughs> All that stuff. Um, no, but, uh, yeah. And uh, so went into radio um, from there. And they taught you, it was a good course. Because it was like, it was really degree level sort of stuff because it was a hell of a lot packed into three months of training. Yeah. And you learnt all about mics and um, fairly technical stuff. Um, but it was a really good grounding for later on. Yeah. And the way, and the way you describe it in the book, I love. It sounds like sort of a, a James Bond style layer. It's this like massive country house once owned by a prince and it, like you say in the book bundles of cables running everywhere hung between ornate ceilings and oak panelled walls which sounds very epic. Yeah. I mean uh, what a cool place to train. So 
So you trained there and then you were placed in Bush House, which was in the international broadcasting. That's right. BBC all, all, building. All the, all the foreign broadcasting the BBC does uh, came from there. I mean, the way it works is uh, that the, we pay a license fee to have the BBC and you get local radio and you get TV, you get mm-hmm. ordinary radio one, all those things. Um, and but the foreign broadcasting is funded by what's called a direct grant, I believe, and it's, it comes from the government, and they pay for that side of the thing. So we're not, you know, uh, contributing to that directly, although because they sponge off all the BBC departments uh, to, you know, because they're short of cash. But at one time they were doing forty nine, four forty two languages, I think it was. Wow! Uh, that, so, at that time, but now I'm not sure how how many they do, and it's online now. It used to be shortwave radio. Oh right, okay. So so over forty nine languages, and in the book, one of my favourite stories is when you are you are in the studio on a on a night shift for a Bengali radio producer. Please share with the listeners because this is one of my favourite favourite stories. Well. <coughs> the 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 work we did at uh, Bush House was shift work. So you had um, a few days, I think it was four, and then um, then you had to do uh, a sort of fill in day, which was uh, later in the evening, and then you had a night shift um, for a few days. And of course, you know, we were kind of young and out and about, and. We didn't really sleep during the day, which we ought to have done, some of us, uh, <laughs> just before being uh, on duty all night, you know, in these studios. And so I was um, sent down to a studio at about two in the morning <clears throat> to do this Bengali um, broadcast. And what that was, was a guy who would come in and, and in and the language, you know, you were talking about, it could be French or anything, you know, but it was Bengali and... Um, when I had to read the announcement in English, which was, uh, and now follows uh, uh, news broadcasts in Bengali language. After that, you'll be able to hear the news in English on the BBC World Service. Clunk. Give him, give him a green light. So he then uh, fade up his mic. He then rabbits for 14 minutes. Uh, now, unfortunately, I fell asleep uh, during this rather interesting broadcast in a language I had no, no concept of. And um, uh, I was slumped over the desk and I woke up to this banging on the glass panel between <laughs> oh the studio, no. which was, of course, being transmitted. Wake up, wake up, you know, and I was, oh, my God. Oh and no. sort of blearily kind of came to, and I thought, well, I'll just play the music. So I, I chopped him his mic off. Played the because mu- this was all being broadcast. All broadcast. This, this shambles was going up, and uh, oh, no. so uh, I, I switched uh, switched on the theme tune. So I hastily read the closing announcement at breakneck speed, um, followed by the BBC World Service news in English, and uh, it was kind of <laughs> awful, awful. <laughs> and um, and that was terrible. <sighs> and worse still, the phone rang afterwards. Uh, after we'd been cut oh, no. off and uh, a guy in the control room said well that was interesting um, and uh, 
He said, in fact, I've got some good news for you. There's a tape running, a Snoop tape, and they had these tapes no. they ran so that the, the bosses could listen the next day, you know, if, if something had gone wrong. And he said, oops, oh, dear, it's fallen off the machine. <laughs> so, Oh, dear, it's accidentally it's fallen accidentally off the fallen. machine. Oh, it, sounds like, it sounds like he saved, he saved you a he bit. He did. Then. I'm forever grateful to him. <laughs> I wasn't fired, no. <laughs> oh, well, is it weird? I, I wanted to ask, is it weird being on the other side now because I'm, I'm on the radio interviewing you? Well, does that feel strange? It's bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's good fun. I enjoy doing it. And uh, it, it's, it's nice to do, isn't it? It's a lovely medium because radio, um, uh, you, you, when you're listening to the radio, you get a picture of what you think is going on um, and you use your imagination uh, to, to fill in all the gaps. Yeah. And, uh, and that's why it's such a lovely medium. And I think, you know, books are I even better in a way because you know you 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 make up all the scenery and everything for yourself. Whereas um, films can be good because they do leave a lot to the imagination. But TV, general, although TV's changed a lot in recent years, of course. But uh, generally speaking, spoon feeds you yeah. the whole thing, so you don't have that imagination bit. Yeah, very very true, very true. Mm. Well. Things did get imaginative, imaginative at the BBC when you joined the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. Yes. This is a very cool department. Would you like to explain to the listeners what this was? Well, yes. In 1958, they were writing plays um, which contained a lot of um, uh, sort of content which were things of the mind and uh, psychological type stuff going on and they thought they needed sounds you know somebody going mad and that sort of stuff um they they weren't happy with the usual kind of orchestral music which they had lots of uh, for, for for that and they didn't want sound effects because they were the standard you know things like sea wash and atmospheres yeah. of, you know in yeah. a cathedral or something so um, they wanted something in between, and the, the few people were there were experimenting with making weird noises. And they could do that because tape recording had come in. Previously, everything was recorded on a kind of disc, you know, like a record, like an album type thing. Um, but when tape came in, that gave you the opportunity to muck around with it and edit it and create strange echoes and textures which well wasn't really possible before and it's really cool sorry it's really cool when you're thinking about the the tapes because it's quite a mathematical process of editing that it's chopping and and measuring out the tempo with with maths oh yeah so I, that's quite cool yes um but one of the things they did that i mean that, that the things i've been just describing were really to do with the dramatic atmospheric tracks but then they went on to making tunes, simple tunes, very often, but quite well made, um, where they'd, they'd get a sound like a cork coming out of, you know, a type sound. <laughs> and, uh, you can't see Paddy right now, but he just <laughs> like, made a popping sound in his mouth <laughs> and it looked very cool. <laughs> um, and uh, so they, 
they record that single sound and put it on a loop of tape and it would be going round and round and just repeating that noise. But they also had uh, uh, the means to uh, change the speed of the tape playback so you could get any note you wanted out of it. And they had a very variable speed uh, knob which would actually graduate in semitones. So you could, you could actually build up on another tape a sequence of these notes. I mean, it sounds it sounds so complicated. It, well, it was a kind of series of simple things, which, when you added them up, you know, looked complicated. But actually, um, yeah. And but they were very. There's much more creativity to it than that sort of just that uh, process has described. And it, I guess, it it became even more creative with the coming about of the synthesizer. Yeah, well, <coughs> some people would say it became less creative. Well, okay. but because um, synthesizers made it much quicker to make those sorts of things. And um, mm. uh, Delia Derbyshire, who was one of the key sort of figures at the, the Radiophonic Workshop, <coughs> she, um, she started playing about with uh, synthesizers later on in her career but she didn't enjoy it very much because she preferred the other process of uh, making sounds from found sounds and um, you know just recording something and then manipulating it and making it into something if anyone doesn't know Delia though it might be good to give her a bit of an introduction because she's quite a, a star in the yeah. world of electronic yeah she's music. the one uh, in the BBC world that, that, that is the big you know figure because she started in the early 60s, and one of the things she did was the Doctor Who theme tune. She didn't write the music for that. She arranged it because a guy called Ron Grainer was commissioned to write a, a theme tune and had suggested it was done on electronics because normally they did hired a band and did it that way. And so he suggested that, and Delia was given the music and she put it all together in a very imaginative way and turned out to have been the, one of the biggest sort of hits of the, <laughs> the whole thing. Yeah, huge, and huge. Well, we'll come on to Doctor Who and, uh, and your other projects a bit later, but I would quite like to play one of your tracks. I'd quite like to play A Highland Morning because this was one of your first synth pieces made on the VCS3 synthesizer. Can you tell me, give, him, give me a little bit of background for this. Well, um, when I first arrived at the workshop, I got a, what's called an attachment, you know, they sort of let you go there for a, a time. And I was helping Delia doing work, uh, and also Brian Hodgson. He was the guy who invented TARDIS taking off sound effect <laughs> which is pretty good yeah, um, yeah. Like the, the Dalek voices he uh, he organised those you know like the TARDIS background mm. um, and those type of things so I was helping them out and then um, eventually the boss gave me a job which was uh, it was just a little jingle which Radio Scotland wanted because there were lots of new radio things going on local radio things going on at the time and they wanted it made into electronic bagpipes 
strange idea. <laughs> and uh, but by chance, the VCS three synthesizer, which was the first one we had, had just arrived. And I thought, well, I'll I'll do it on that. So I did, and I ma manufactured these electronic bagpipes <laughs> and uh, yeah i mean it sounds so cool Let, let's let's give it a listen let's give it a listen here's a highland morning very nice very very technical well speaking of technical let's talk a little bit about more of your other work i'd love to hear about firstly doctor who how did your doctor who gig come about well uh, doctor who had lots of people doing incidental music for it who were hired freelancers <coughs> and um for many years a guy called dudley simpson australian um musical director very colourful guy, he was amazing, um, you, you know, very, very competent at m making all this incidental stuff for Doctor Who. And he, he used to hire an orchestra, a small orchestra, and then he used to come to the workshop and add a few bits of synthesizer on mm -hmm. top of that. And he did this work for many, many years. And... Um, but a new broom arrived, a guy called John Nathan Turner, who, who started running Doctor Who. And he fired Dudley, <laughs> unfortunately, oh, Dudley, no. and, um, and got us to do the music instead because he wanted a kind of fresher approach. And uh, a few of us there, Peter Howell, myself and Roger Lim and uh, Malcolm Clark, we, various other people all did... Um, Doctor Who scores, you know, four episodes. There were adventures which had four episodes each. So you'd get given one of those. And that'll take you four weeks, not necessarily consecutively, but it would take a week to do an episode. So what you had to do was go along, go through it, watch it with um, on a VHS tape with a with the director, and they'd say where they thought the music should go and you might suggest something or, or not. And uh, you'd walk away with a list of timings because there was a time code in a little window so you could see exactly where you were on the tape. Uh, and then you'd take it back to the workshop, make the music, and then return to TV Centre where they would stitch it onto the show with all the wow. sound effects and everything. And so you couldn't compose with the with the picture in front of you. You had to take down the times and then compose to the actual times instead of seeing it and then composing. Yeah, you did that, and uh, God, we had a difficult. We had a system uh, where we had a, a counting track which we could put down on one of the tracks of the the multi-track machine. So it just went, uh, you know, uh, like two minutes, one two 
three, four, and counting oh, around the okay. seconds. So while you were doing it, you'd know where you were. You could tell where you were, and you could um, you could hit a point uh, by just counting. Um, but we mm. were we were very keen on making things fit to picture, and I'm not sure that was an awfully good idea. I mean, it's a wonderful um, guy called Henry Mancini who's written all manner of film music and hits and all that American who who's once said uh, anything fits anything um you don't need to make it fit and uh you write a piece of music and you can try this at home just think of a, a find a scene in a movie or a something turn the sound down and play a track of music to it and you see it all fits like mad you know cuts happen and it all uh, it looks good as long as you get the mood right. Yeah, so um, we were we were trying too hard, I think. Well, I think you did a pretty good job because it's got a very extreme fan base behind it who is still pounding you to this day. Oh, I know. So I can't believe it. Yeah, we thought it would all be you know long gone, and yet they you still see that people are still watching those old old yeah, episodes. Yeah, what quaint. a special thing to be a part of. <laughs> um. Well, so lucky, very yeah, lucky. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And you also not only did a little bit of sci-fi with Doctor Who, but also with Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So oh, yeah. we've got, hmm. Paddy has given us a little audio clip um, with some special effects. Can you give us a little bit of context behind the audio clip before we play it? Yeah, um, I'd done um, uh, one episode at the very beginning of the Hitchhiker's Guide, which was the pilot show. And I'd put that together and done sound effects for it, like, um, you know, Vogon voices and, you know, spaceships and uh, some guns in it. I'm not sure. There, there was the end of the world, is in it. <laughs> and I'd made all those just, things. Just the end of the world and they sound effects. They record, yeah, just do the end of the world, would you? <laughs> and they did, <laughs> they did that. Um, they, they'd made those uh, uh, actors' uh, performances in another studio somewhere, which I wasn't involved in. Um, but they then brought the tapes over and I put that first episode together with all the sound effects. And then I went off somewhere and didn't do the rest of that first wonderful radio series. Um, but um, they got me back for the Christmas show, which was a special one after that first radio series. And I did all the effects and also did the music at that time not the theme tune which is the eagles uh journey of the sorcerer oh. um the but so but um i did the you know the stuff in the body of the show the incidental yeah. music and the special effects uh, on the voices and stuff and the and the effects yeah and i, I put this one in because the effects um is is such good fun making making things like that and this, you this can hear how much fun it is as well. Like it is a very funny scene. Well, you, yeah, it'll explain itself, won't it? Because you've got the yeah. the voices there. <laughs> All right, let's play it. Let's see. Let's see what people think. Just think, they left me an ordinary menial robot to stop you, a gigantic heavy-duty battle machine, while they ran off to save themselves. What do you think they would leave me with? Well, something pretty damn devastating, I would expect. Expect, oh yes, expect. I'll tell you what they gave me to protect myself with, shall I? Yes, all right. Nothing. What? Nothing at all. Not an electronic sausage. 
Whoa! Doesn't that just take the biscuit? And me with this terrible pain in all the diodes down my left side. Yeah? Oh, that makes me angry. Think I'll smash that wall down. <laughs> Very impressive. Oh, you ain't seen nothing yet. I can take this floor out too. No trouble. Oh dear. What a depressingly stupid machine. good very good and hitchhikers as well what has got such a cult following and it, i think it must have been so cool to work with douglas adams how did you find that he was great and very generous and you know nice nice bloke um very sad that he died um quite young really um and uh but he he um he arrived and we did that pilot show with uh Simon Brett, who was the producer of the, all that at the time. Then Jeffrey Perkins took over, who was uh, brilliant at producing stuff. And we used to spend hours making these shows, which came along subsequently. Um, but I remember going to the pub after putting the pilot together. And it was a lovely day. We went down to the, I think it was Dover Castle, down, down the road from the Maidavelle Studios. And um, it was... Um, would have been Simon Brett and Douglas Adams and me in the pub having a pint outside. Actually, I remember what a group! What a group! <laughs> and uh, <laughs> well, um, I was very kind of junior member of that particular team. But um, uh, Douglas was saying, uh, well, well um, Simon was getting the drinks. So <laughs> I was talking to him, and he said, uh, "Well, we've it's a pilot, and." It's great because we've blown the world up in the first episode. And after that, we can go anywhere, you know, and just do anything. So it's got huge kind of potential. So this question really um, that we've got to get it through the system at the BBC, the red nose department, you know, comedy. Yeah. Yeah, you wrote about this in the book. It, like the studio audience is laughing, but yeah. Hitchhikers seemed to be a bit more subtle. No, yeah, we didn't require comedy. an audience. Although that was tried, actually, eventually, when they did the tele television version, oh. they did try an, an audience laughing, uh, ran, ran the episode through a, a theatre with mics up and recorded the, uh, the laughter, and it, it, it wasn't used thank god because it wasn't right for that i don't think no no no, no. but uh, anyway um but douglas at that pub thing was saying well hopefully they'll like it but we'll have to wait and see sort of thing i had no idea that it would turn into such a a thing with his books and everything you know it just uh, launched him on the scene you worked with Douglas Adams and you also worked with some other iconic people such as Michael Palin. So I really like the backstory behind the 80 days theme so, um, that you sent in, which we'll play in a second. But I'd love for you just to, just to tell yeah. me a little bit about that. Well, I, by that time, I had left the Radiophonic Workshop and the BBC and I had my own studio 
um, uh, making still sort of theme tunes and also working on commercials and corporate videos and all that sort of thing. And uh, it was uh, early days of, uh, you know, having people's, uh, like a home studio, except that mine was had enough space for musicians uh, as well. And um, so I was doing that, and um, I got a call. Well, in fact, I had done several shows in the uh, kind of documentary series like uh, The World About Us and those sorts of things, BBC shows. And uh, they got Michael Palin to do it, who was not, um, you know, he wasn't into doing travelogues at the time. It was his first one. <laughs> and um, they'd already shot it by the time I got there. And um, we came up with various sort of ideas for the theme tune, uh, eventually hit on this rather um, kind of quaint sort of uh, <laughs> brassy thing. And uh, it worked very well, I think. And um, I also did the incidental music, and that kind of involved doing music from all over the world type styles and using the theme, sometimes quoting that in a kind of Japanese way or a Chinese or Indian Oh, nice. Way. Oh, nice. So that was oh, so a nice it, thing to so work Yeah, nice thing to oh, work Oh, that's on. clever. And I think it's quite... Uh, there's the story you told me about how the theme went through different variations until Michael Palin said... How about we add a big bass drum to it? Oh, well, yes. I mean, I did various kind of uh, ideas for the theme. And Michael Palin said, oh, why don't we just have a sort of big bass drum banging along, you know? And I, I thought, oh, yeah, he's kind of thinking of Monty Python type style thing, which is a brass band piece. And um, so I, I went along those lines and it was it's done on some French horns and a trumpet, which is... Uh, not very radiophonic. wasn't meant to be radiophonic, um, <laughs> and uh, so uh, I was able to record those in my studio. And I had wonderful people playing on it from the BBC Symphony Orchestra, um, and uh, so that was it. Around the world in eighty days. Well, here is the "Around the World in Eighty Days" title. Let's not leave out the part where you were nominated for a BAFTA, but we'll talk about that after <laughs> we play this. <laughs> Yes. I think I think it does capture the mood of it. Yes, it's um, it was uh, it just kind of worked, and some things do, and some things don't. You know, I mean, uh, one always you always try your hardest to make things work, um, but uh, that just sort of worked. You know, just straight away. Um, there's quite a lot of detailed stuff. You know, it sounds quite as if it's for a TV show. Um, yeah, it, yeah, it does. Mm. It really does. Well, tell me about how the BAFTA nomination came about and how. what was it like going to that award ceremony? Oh, it was bizarre. Um, didn't win. Um, 
And uh, I remember somebody there saying, uh, BAFTA's a very long night if you lose. <laughs> and uh, he's right. Um, but I, I was the only person in the room I hadn't heard of. Um, they were <laughs> they were all kind of uh, famous. Well, no, there were a lot of famous people there. And um, uh, um, my wife, Linda, thoroughly enjoyed it and got a new dress for the occasion. And uh, we had dinner. And there were cables everywhere because it was a major oh. TV thing. And, yeah. uh, you know, uh, it's quite nerve-wracking because you sit at the table and you they really, you don't know, um, you don't know whether you've won or not. They don't tell you. So it is a surprise. And a camera arrives um, at the table and focuses on your face so they can capture that moment of disappointment oh, <laughs> when no. you don't win. <laughs> and um, I remember somebody afterwards said, "Oh dear, I'm so sorry. Uh, you looked, uh, you know, you looked, <laughs> you looked a bit upset." I said, "Oh dear, oh, did no. I?" And she said, "No, I know you, so I I could tell, but you wouldn't. You were all right, really. But uh, I mean, you you are, you know, you kind of gear up for it, and you think, oh my God, I'm going to have to walk up there and get this yeah. thing." There was no speech was expected with the words on the thing, so didn't didn't have to worry about that. Um, but uh, and who was who was some of your favourite celeb sightings at the Baftas? I, I remember Mar Melvin Bragg was there. Um, all, all sorts of uh, I can't remember a single one now, can I? Um, <laughs> but they, they everybody in the world at that time uh, was was there. Um, very cool and um, very very cool Michael Palin we were on a table with Michael Palin and various other people and uh, so you know it was quite a quite a thing I'm a massive thing you you really left that out until the last minute that you were nominated for a BAFTA when we were talking about it yesterday well it was, <laughs> it was I mean, like oh and I was nominated for a BAFTA well the casually. Um, the show that won that year and it's a long time ago now um, was uh, Poirot and that was a lovely you know music for that was great uh, Chris Gunning and uh, so um, I didn't mind you know uh, losing to that that was, that was fine yeah. I remember I was talking to I was talking to him before uh, you know we sat down for dinner because I found him we had a little chat and uh, he said um, he said yeah, you, you, the, the winner goes to this party afterwards where Princess Anne, who is the president of BAFTA, um, you know, you meet her sort of thing, you know. I said, Only oh. Only the winners are invited. And, and I, well, yeah, I said. Oh, I that's said, cruel. I said, oh, it's only the winners. And she said, yeah, she's not interested in losers. <laughs> so, Oh. Um, well, he didn't know oh, he'd no, he, he didn't know he'd won it at the time, because um, he could easily have been in that category. He thought, I'm oh, sure. No. He's a lovely guy. Sadly, died recently, actually. But um, he, he he really deserved that. So that's okay in a way. But it, it it's a funny thing, that whole award thing, because uh, it's kind of uh, preys on your mind a bit. True. Um, well, BAFTA or not, you've done a pretty amazing work. What do you think is the project or composition that you're the most proud of? Um, overall, I like 
the stuff that was for the Hitchhiker's Guide because um, when we were working at the workshop, we used to say, should we really be doing this? As we made a, a jingle for a local radio station, say, um, or is it just because they're getting it cheap because we're on the staff? And uh, actually, if they had their choice for a, a, a jingle, they'd go somewhere else, you know, with a huge band of musicians and that sort of thing. Um, and um, we thought, you know, there were quite a lot of jobs that we did we thought were really not radiophonic, if you like. But the Hitchhiker's Guide certainly was. I mean, it had the whole thing, the music and the sound effects and the whole atmosphere of the thing was thoroughly electronic music um, required for that. And it's nice to work on something where you're doing something appropriate. And uh, I don't True. Know, that's what I did, yeah. True, oh, amazing. But also, yeah, I was going to say I did lots and lots of library music and I'm quite proud of some of that, um, which is music which you can license easy easily and uh, did a lot of that over the years. <coughs> nice. Mm. Well... It's it's a it seems like a tricky world to go into. Yes. I just would like to know, as somebody interested in the music career and also with friends and people interested in in that area of work, what advice would you give people just starting off? Well, um, it's much more difficult now for people than it was for me. I mean, I just fell into a very lucky um, area. Um, but um, the, th the main thing about it is produce the music as well as you can. And now, of course, that is easier than it was for us because you can, you can get a package of uh, electronic um, sounds and, and real, you know, real musician sounds, and you can record everything very easily. And then if you play an instrument, you can use that as well, and, and you can get friends to record at home. Um, it's not hard to make... Um, to make music um, and record it. So um, the main thing is to get that done as, as uh, well as you possibly can. And then uh, something I'm really bad at is selling stuff. Um, <laughs> I think I could sell somebody else, you know, if somebody wanted mm. me to, 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 to sell their kind of work, I could. But it's very difficult to sell your own stuff. So you can true, either... True. Yeah, you can either go and find an agent who might be interested or you can just uh, um, send tapes endlessly around to people. Um, but the best way is to make contacts and try and meet some people who are in a position to commission you for something and maybe offer to do something without a fee just to sort of get a foot in the door and also learn a bit more about how to do it because uh, there's lots of productions going on all the time it's just a question of getting in on on that and contacts is really the way to do it provided you've I suppose got that sorry i suppose the hardest bit is just starting off though yeah um but um i think if if you're going to be writing music you have to like doing it because it's quite it's quite a lonely thing you know doing it on your own aren't you um, unless you mm. unless you're in a group or something doing it, but um, which you are in a group <coughs> currently. Let's do a little segue into that because you've got some pretty exciting projects coming up. Can you <coughs> tell me a little bit about your band? Oh uh, yeah, the Radiophonic 
workshop is, as it's called, is a group of elderly people who used to be working at the Radiophonic Workshop. And we've been going around to festivals and that sort of thing. Not so much recently because uh, lockdown kind of put an end to all of that. But before that, we were going around to music festivals and putting on a show, which was just such fun. I mean, the first one we did was at the Roundhouse. And uh, they, the others who were involved in all this, much more than I was really to start with, um, said, would you like to join in with this? And I said, yeah, that's great. <coughs> and um, uh, put the phone down and then didn't sleep that night because <laughs> I suddenly the reality had hit me <coughs> that I can sort of knock stuff out in the studio but as for standing on a stage and doing all this stuff I'm not sure that's um, a very good idea um, probably won't do it very well and uh, uh, I, I rang up the next day and said look I've, I've thought about this I haven't slept <laughs> I th I'm frightened of it I don't think I'm going to do it and uh, they said, oh, go on, you know, and uh, cajoled. And eventually I agreed to it. And, of course, we had a great time and it was great fun. Uh, and we had enough time to prepare it. So um, it all went OK. And then, Good. And yeah. you, you've, played, you've played some massive places. I mean, Paddy, let's not forget, you have played Glastonbury. Well, we have. I mean, we weren't on the Dolly Parton stage, to be fair. <laughs> there, there are an awful lot of... Um, different stages there but we were, I think we were on the Glade the Glade stage and we did that a few years back and uh, that was w wonderful to to do that because of all the kind of hype about Glastonbury and uh, uh, it's also nice when people are impressed when you tell them you've done it yeah um, oh my god but it was mega fun. impressive it, it was great fun to do yeah, well, if you want to see Paddy live, he is playing at the Blue Dot Festival. Yeah, um, that's up in Manchester. Well, let's play a little extract from something that... Uh, let's play the wireless mix, because oh, this, is a, this is a cool piece that, uh, yeah. um, that I was listening to. Here it is now. London. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. Thames, Dover, White, Portland. This is the BBC Light Programme. You're listening to Radio Luxembourg on 208. Realised by Desmond Briscoe of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. All right. Push your buttons for Uncle Fluff and here we go again. What? This is Radio 2. Radio Caroline. Radio 1 is wonderful. LBC. 
From London. Capital Radio. There's another scorcher today, so put on your sun cream. And now for the daily news, read by Gary Walsh. And now, here is the shipping forecast, issued by the Met Office at 0015 today. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender. That if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their final tower. Wireless. We needed um, some more modern material to go with the old, you know, favourite tracks from the Radiophonic Workshop day. Um, and so we uh, uh, we each, you know, did some new numbers. And Wireless is one which I got together, um, and it has all sorts of voices on it, which are as if they were from the radio. They aren't. They're specially made for the piece. Um, and... Uh, a friend who I won't name and um, and his wife very kindly did some voices for it. And Is this quite a big celebrity? He's not. Yeah, well, he's, he's known, but I don't want to, you know. Um, leave a little bit of mystery. We've, yeah. had enough, we've had enough celebrity gossip for, yeah. for one day. No, he, I mean, he was great. <laughs> and actually, the funny thing about it was he does all this kind of impersonations of BBC World Service, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And somebody wrote to me and said, I noticed that you've used my voice on this uh, uh, and uh, you, without permission. And, and I said, well, sorry, no. <laughs> Somebody's wow. very good. I uh, found it quite interesting how good his, uh, his voices are. But he's... Uh, anyway, you can guess who it was, probably. I don't know. He, um, very cool. But uh, uh, then it's followed by a kind of uh, thing with drums and bass and all that stuff in which is is, is uh, quite fun yeah it's a great piece it's a fun piece it is it is very fun yeah but we also had fun composing a song over easter yeah which it which is very exciting to be released on the radio because this is a song that i wrote and paddy produced um and we spent about two days in in the studio um, working on this um paddy did you have a good time i loved it but you see we got on with it and uh, there was no kind of arguing or anything like that and no we actually <laughs> i think possibly if you have uh, we, there was a deadline wasn't there we had to get it done then because you would be going off you know to your college yeah back uh, up to uni and um so uh there was a deadline which does help a bit so you had to get it done, so you don't mess around. Whereas if you've got all the time in the world, oh dear, you know, you can go 
astray on that. And you produce the best thing you can do in the time. And of course, afterwards, you've got all sorts of ideas about what, you know, how you could have done it. But I thought you did absolutely brilliantly. So uh, well done. Good. Thanks, Paddy. I could, couldn't have done it without you. Well, before before we play it, though, I would like to read a little extract from your book because it's probably my favourite quote that you said, and I think it, I think it's applicable to to our work together. Um, you said, "Music is a self-conscious process with lots of trial and error, frequent dead ends, bum notes, spectacular failures of taste, and fumbling before occasionally a wow moment happens." Yeah, this that's. I saw that. Yeah, that's the process. <laughs> it's, yeah, that uh, that is the process, and we went through all of all of those trial and error. Yeah, bum notes. Yeah, the lot. Yeah, and you're going to do that, and unless you give yourself up to that and don't try and be, you know, perfect, uh, you won't you won't produce those extra little happy moments, happy accidents. Main thing is the feeling of the music, I think, and of course that's. Um, I won't say it's not easier. It's um, it it's much more likely to happen. Communication of that sort when you've got vocals, um, because obviously the voice is able to carry lots of emotion in it. It's the most important thing about music, isn't it? The little feeling you get when you hear it. Mm. I think that is very wise, and that's what make music. That's what makes music so good. Is that subjective feeling? Everybody feels something different when they hear it. Mm, they do. But before we find out what the listeners feel when they hear this song, we've come to the end of the show, Paddy. We'll play the song as an outro, but I just wanted to say a massive thank you for coming in. Paddy's book, Rocking at the BBC, is available on Kindle. I also have a copy in Edinburgh if anybody would like to borrow it off of me. And Paddy is also playing with the Radiophonic Workshop at the Blue Dot Festival. If you're in Manchester, go get tickets and see him. It will be great. Paddy, I've had a blast. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming in. Well, thank you so much. Bye, Paddy. In the middle of the table is a bottle of milk and it's there between me and you The bottle busks in the morning sun unafraid to show we're living as one I'll watch you through the kitchen window clearing away our mess feeling like i'm at home again calm you let me rest now i have a chance to write about the milk we share you to be so worried about time now I don't care 
And I'm tired of trying to find out the price I'll pay. If perfection is the enemy of progress, when will perfect go away? Cause I'm tired of trying to say it. So Is spelled like your name. Candlelight suits you even more than the morning sun. Flickering glimpses of secrets, guilt, and love. And it's not the laughter you bring but the way your eyes light up the candlelight brings out the blue close up and i'm tired of trying to find out the price i'll pay if perfection is the Spelt like your name. Give me a structure, cause I don't have long. I can't place the words or figure where they belong. Maybe in a setting that's safe and protected instead of sporadic. I'll try and collect it using rhymes all the time, changing the words, perfecting. It's what you deserve. It's what you deserve. What you deserve. And I'm tired of trying to find out the price I'll pay. If perfection is the enemy of progress, when will perfect go away? Cause I'm trying to say it, so I'll write it in a song. Heaven is spelt like your name in the middle of the table is a bottle of milk and it's sunny outside and I'm looking at you so please listen when I say just trying to explain heaven is spelt like your 
heaven is spelled like your heaven is spelled like your name